This is a Kitty Pod production. The Keep It To Yourself podcast was taped in front of a live, yet limited, masked, and socially distant audience. From Television City in Hollywood. John is in a basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement, thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat, bad job laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway, looking for a new friend. The man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen wants $11 bills. You only got 10 Welcome to episode number 123 of the Keep It To Yourself podcast, the most above average podcast ever to hit your ear holes. And going back to old intros, a night possibly made for history. I'll tell you why in just a minute. My name, of course, and as always, is Jason Bullet. The regulator, innovator, dominator, creator, updater, pussy, imitator, assassinator, baby. I demand the hour to remember the power to sweet to be sour. And you'll have to forgive me if there's a noise in the background. I am recording this at just past, or just before rather, 10.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Wednesday night, the 19th of May, 2021, and I am watching Corey Kluber of the New York Yankees throw a no-hitter. He is one out away as I speak. It is 10.29 and 10 seconds, as I just mentioned, I had a little timestamp on this episode. While we're getting all this going here, just want to get my social media quickly in case lightning strikes, metaphorically speaking. Twitter is at keep underscore podcast civilian Instagram, Jason underscore 51838. Keep it to yourself. Facebook page available and the world's loneliest email, kitypod at gmail.com. You can feel the tension in Bullet House in the rolling hills of Saratoga County, New York. It's a crying shame that YouTube TV took off the S Network. You're seeing history in the making as I try to start this podcast. I hope this has been a good week or two weeks for you. Let's get to the vanity portion before we run into trouble here. This could be it. Breaking news. No hitter, Corey Cooper. Ground ball to Kleber Torres. And that'll do it. A no hitter for Corey Kluber. On a Wednesday night in Texas, Kluber becomes part of forever. Corey Kluber came within one man of a perfect game. He pitches a no-hitter, and the Yankees are delirious on the field, celebrating with Corey Kluber in the middle. Ball game over. Yankees win. The Yankees win. He did it. First no-hitter for the New York Yankees since David Cohn in 1999 ladies and gentlemen you have just witnessed history on the keep it to yourself podcast holy fucking shit i never thought i'd live to see one of these again Corey kluber no hitter and the second one of the day too spencer turnbull the detroit tigers threw one earlier today six no hitters and we're only a month and a half in the 2021 major league baseball season who would have thunk it Holy moly. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Historic moment. It's been so, so long. Now, before we get to the vanity portion of this episode, 
I have a little correction I like to make. I was so excited with delirium, or delirious with excitement, over Corey Kluber's no-hitter. A, I mispronounced his last name, and B, I'd forgotten that the other no-hitter occurred the night before this one. So two errors, 0 for 2, not a good start to the episode. I have to apologize for that one, and hopefully you will forgive me. So with all that out the way, we now get into the vanity portion of episode 123 of the Kitty Pod. What has happened in the life of one J. Michael Bullitt, I hear you ask? Well, plenty, I guess. Mother's Day was just recently, back on the 9th of May. Your humble host had himself a bit of a cry the evening before, as he was remembering his mother, who has been departed from this earth for over four years now. And it was just uh, quite a day here. We had my sister, her husband, and my nephew over at the house sometime after my dad and his companion returned home to Bullet House. It was uh, quite the dinner. forgot what we had. It's been so long now. But it was quite... I think we had spaghetti. I'm not sure. I really don't know, to be honest with you, but it sure was good, I'll tell you. I was going to get my sister a gift card, but my sister is at mom's, so that's now her birthday present. What else happened? Oh, yeah, the following Saturday, the day of the Preakness, when that cheating horse, Medina Spear, and that equally cheating trainer, Bob Baffert, had two horses in the race and none of them one, well, Medina Spear hit the show play. I went over to my friend Dave's house and played cribbage. This is the first time I had visited him since Memorial Day weekend. Now, he said that, well, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. But I did just out of, you know, maybe personal preference or safety. I don't know what. Now, I left early enough to go to the CVS store near exit A of the Northway in Clifton Park before I left for Albany. And I was going to get a couple of things. I missed a toothbrush. I was going to get a new one. Now, here's the bad thing about CVS. When it comes to their generic brand items, they'll do a thing with great frequency, whereas you buy one of that product, you get the second for 50% off. So it's not buy one, get one free. It's buy one, get one for half off. The second item, that is. Now, I'm also a member of CVS uh, Extra Care Rewards, so once in a while, I'll get these cards in the mail or sent to, the, sent to my card by way of the CVS app on my phone. Let me tell you something. Those coupons ain't going to work, I found out, when you have an item that's already on sale. So no double dipping on the discounts. And even worse, I used the self-checkout and I was having trouble. I was trying to negotiate with this uh, cashier who was working the counter that night. It was an awful time of it. I said, well, just cancel those two items. And then I went and got me a... A charcoal toothbrush and they said you want the discount go get the second so she rang me up twice I paid up and then I went and got the second item and that was it I headed off to my friend's house I was a bit late but I don't think we started till around what 715 730 anyway I had a good time lost both my games it was great to be with actual people again fully vaccinated and I'm looking forward to the Memorial Day picnic and you're going to hear that in a future episode of this podcast so that was quite a trip to start this episode here. And I want to tell you about the subject of this week's episode. I'm taking a little trip back through time. This is episode one, two, three. You know, one, two, three, ring the bell. I decided to bring back episode 44 of the podcast, which was recorded three years ago this very month, or this very week, I should say, leading up to Memorial Day weekend, wherein I took to the WWE Network, Rest in Peace in the United States, still active elsewhere in the world, 
and reviewed the 1992 Royal Rumble. You're going to hear that portion of the episode later on. So, actually, you know what? You're going to hear it right now. And I'll be back to do some pod shout-outs and one more thing. I got some more stuff to talk about right after all this is over. So, hit the Wayback Machine. Get ready. Strap yourself in. Because here we go. Back to F44, which dropped May 24th, 2018. 30 seconds of music, please. Here it is, gang, the moment you've all been waiting for. Yours truly looks at the 1992 Royal Rumble. Now, this is not a watch-along of sorts, so I'm not trying to steal the essence of Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson. Now, try me up here, Bruce. You say this guy's going to steal our essence? What do you got to say about that? Well, big shout to both of them anyway. As I told you before, this is going to be more Peter Winston than Bruce and Conrad. And speaking of which, uh, shout out to Jim Perot. Hope you're enjoying something to wrestle with podcast. But enough of that. Let's get right to the main business. The main event, if you will. First, a little background. Uh, the Royal Rumble of 1992 took place on January 19th. And much to my surprise, it took place in our own backyard, ladies and gentlemen. It took place at what was then called the Knickerbocker Arena. Later, the Pepsi Arena. And now, since 2007... The Times Union Center in Albany, New York, just down the road. There were 17,000 people, so the joint was packed out, as they say. In this instance, the Royal Rumble decided the WWF champion, the World Wrestling Federation, that is, instead of its usual purpose, and that would be the number one contender for said title who would fight the champion at WrestleMania later that year. Now, what I'm going to do here is, like, I watched... Every match on the card, I have that kind of time on the weekends. And, well, the Royal Rumble is going to be the main focus, the title event. And so we're going to start right with the undercard, the first match of same. And that is the Orient Express led by Mr. Fuji, or their manager. You don't really see that in wrestling nowadays. Paul Heyman is as close as it gets, but not really. Only just. And, of course, they're taking on the new foundation, which consists of the late, great Owen Hart. And Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Uh, of course, he's sown his seed in the current WWE. His daughter, Natalie, wrestled under the name Natalia. She's on the main roster in the women's division, formerly the Divas. I'm glad they changed that name. Just a little side note there. And, of course, Owen Hart here. Um, I remember when I was in high school. In fact, as I record this tomorrow, it's hard to believe, marks 19 years since he died in the ring in Kansas City. It was at the... Over the Edge pay-per-view in Kansas City on May 23rd, 1999. And he was performing as the Blue Blazer. And there was a stunt that was going to happen where he was going to hover over the ring. Or he's going to come down in a harness and from the roof or whatever, the ceiling. But something happened and it was all devastating. And sadly, Owen passed away. And I remember Jim Ross giving the viewers the sad news. It was all me and my friends could talk about in school the next day. So, uh, not much to speak of in this match. The new foundation win it. 
But of note was like Mr. Fuji's cane. Like they said it was a loaded cane in the commentary. More on that later. The commentary that is. But as Owen Hart goes right for the turnbuckle. Right from the shoulder. It uh, kind of breaks in two. You can just see it splintered right at the top. So uh, there you go right there. So I guess it wasn't as low as I thought. By the way. This is not going to be the most in-depth analysis you're going to get. I'll leave that to Peter Winston and the rest here. I'll also leave the deep dives to Bruce Conrad and Tony Schiavone. So I'll leave them to do the business. Alright, next up on the card is the great Rowdy Roddy Piper against the Mountie Jacques Rougeau. And this match is for the WWF Intercontinental title. We talked about one uh, deceased wrestler. It's pretty sad that a number of these people on the roster have uh, since gone to the hereafter. But that's how it is. The professional wrestling lifestyle certainly does not lend itself to a um, grand old age. I've already mentioned, I think it was episode 42, that uh, Bruno Sammartino lived till he was 82. He passed away earlier this year. And Rowdy Roddy Piper's podcast was something I enjoy listening to. The man had a great talent for the microphone, personality. Heck, he did Piper's Pit back when he was in the WWF way back when. And Roddy Piper passed in 2015. It was uh, not really an eventful match here. The undercard was kind of eh, as you'll know, early, as you'll know later on. So, um, there you go right there. We're all waiting for the main event. So, we're just sitting through all this. Just waiting through a river of shit to get to the big stuff right here. Now, in the immediate run-up to the match, Lord Alfred Hayes, he also a blessed memory, informed the viewers that the Mountie had won the Intercontinental Strap off of Bret Hart. Bret the Hitman Hart, that is. Two nights earlier in Springfield, Massachusetts. And, of course, that's another community in another part of the country that is close to yours truly's heart, as that is the area where my mom grew up, my uh, late lamented mom who passed away last year. Love you, mom. Miss you so much. My mom grew up nearby in Westfield, about a good 10 miles west of Springfield as the crow flies. Now, it was stated that Bret Hart had suffered a fever during the match. He actually had a fever of 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, there have been times I've come into work when I was sick when I really shouldn't have. There was a time in uh, mid-June of 2016 where I uh, actually left work early. I actually had to ask to do it because I was, um, I think I was sweating a bit. I was having a fever. Nothing real serious to that matter. I, I thought I was going to have a heart attack or something like that. But I was just um, having the chills. I just was not in a good way. And I was off work for... A good majority of the week and then I found out I actually had a mild case of pneumonia and that was preceded by a fever so it was like well good news your fever broke bad news you have a mild case of pneumonia it's not serious enough to put you in the hospital but you're just gonna have to shut it down over the weekend so I was just in bed for a vast majority of the time I eventually overcame I kicked out at two like it was gonna kill me or anything well, it was quite the physical match, but in the end, Rowdy Roddy Piper took control of the situation by putting a sleeper hold on the Mountie, and that's how he won the match. But, wait, there's more, as they say in the infomercials. Rowdy Roddy Piper proceeds to grab the shock stick off of the Mountie. This happened.
I don't know about you, but that shock stick sounded rather cartoonish, eh? But then again, that's the world of professional wrestling for you. At least that was the WWE in 1992 anyway. Next we go to Lord Alfred of Hayes, he of blessed memory yet again, and this time Hulk Hogan's gonna cut a promo about the Royal Rumble. He catches him in the bathroom, well that's uh, kinda awkward at the best of times, but it is professional wrestling once again, and uh, his lordship interviews the Hulkster, and here's what came out of his mouth. I'm going to the Royal Rumble to defeat 29 other superstars. I'm going to the Royal Rumble to get the WWF title back around the Hulkster's waist. And now the Coliseum video, all my fans out there, now you know you won't be my friends if you get in the ring with me. I'm glad you came by to see me now, Alfred. You know, this is my cup of tea, and you know a lot about tea, my friend. But we're not going to be sipping tea. I'm going to throw all those dudes out, get the WWF title back, and you better get out of here. I'm getting ready. I got the feeling I'd better get out now before I... Thankfully, Lord Alfred was able to get out of there with his own skin. But that was probably the calmest you'd ever heard of the Hulkster. Remember when he wasn't racist? Don't you wish that was still happening? Oh, anyway, this is kind of an odd tangent here, but when I was in junior high, and I think I gotta go back to middle school, then 7th and 8th grade, let's say, I can remember there were times I had a substitute teacher who looked like uh, Hulk Hogan, or at least in our circle of friends, that's what we uh, called him. Well, we didn't call him that to his face. We wouldn't dare do that. His name was Mr. Bearhide. Ooh, boy. It was tough getting through a class with him, let me tell you. Anybody was in there with me, you certainly know of what I speak. But uh, this too shall pass. I survived. I'm sure you did too. I don't know why I put it that way, but there you go. Come on, Jay. Get on with the rest of the show here. And one final note on the promo. Well, I certainly know a spot of tea. Uh, I've never told you this on the podcast, but I'm of partial English descent. In fact, I'm part English, part Native American. I was into an adopted family. You know, I don't really know my real uh, ethnic roots here. My mom was Polish, and my dad was uh, Native American, French Canadian. I gotta get one of those, like, Ancestry DNA or 23andMe saliva tests that can give you all the info. But then again, my DNA will be on I'm running that risk. One, two, three into the folks. Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre is at the door. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Cause you know we're about to rip shit up. Give me the microphone. Yet another shout out to Adam Parada. Or as you recall, I played him out to this music on episode 41, the one-year anniversary special of the Keep It To Yourself podcast. A little Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre, The Chronic, came out in 1992. A little research on Wikipedia told me so. Now, I admit something to you right here. I actually skipped the next match on the card, and that was the Beverly Brothers, accompanied by Jameson, against the Bushwhackers, who in turn were accompanied by the genius, Lanny Poffo. Let's just say the match went too long for the people involved here. But there, I did take some notes, not about the match, but of the other people uh, not really uh, involved in the match, at least not in the ring anyway. And that was the genius, Lanny Poffo. 
He really had the affinity for poetry during his time in the WWF. Of course, that was his shtick to come up with such doggerel. I've done the poetry bit myself, but not the hardcore lengths. I do remember when I had a poetry assignment when I was in 8th grade in English. I had to go out to the bungalow out back of Saratoga Springs High School with the mother of one of my classmates as a teacher, believe it or not. And one of the things I did in English was we had to write poetry. I came up with three limericks. I don't recall what they were offhand, but the teacher sure enjoyed them. And of course, the uh, genius came out in uh, full academic regalia, just the mortarboard, the black robe, and that's it. No um, specific college was uh, depicted, but he did have a point to wear the robe and the mortarboard like a college graduate, mainly because Albany, New York is a university town. Sure, it's the capital of New York State. It's the largest city outside of Buffalo in upstate New York. But there are three, count them three, colleges and universities within the area, within spitting distance of each other. Siena College, which is in Loudonville, New York. Great basketball program. Uh, 1989, first appearance in the tournament. They upset Stanford. By tournament, I mean the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament. They've had some uh, great success. Uh, kind of in a down period. Jimmy Passos, as of recording, uh, recently was fired for some misconduct toward a member of uh, the staff, like a team manager or some such. I don't want to really get into it, but then again, I don't really know all the facts about what happened that led to Mr. Passos' departure. There's also the College of St. Rose, which is located right as you get close to downtown on Madison Avenue. And you just go right through that campus. Uh, they have a great Division II program. Brian Bury's been the coach for uh, forever and a day. In fact, a personality in local television news, a man named Dan Levy, played basketball at St. Rose. And he is currently at the NBC affiliate here in New York's Capital Region. And, of course, the big one is the University at Albany, SUNY Albany. Or, as it's formally called, the University at Albany State University of New York. Go Danes! And I am recording this on the 22nd of May, as I have uh, stated previously. In just four days, the UAlbany men's lacrosse team will be playing in the NCAA Division I men's lacrosse final for the first time ever. And they have had themselves one heck of a season. In fact, a little side tangent, I haven't talked much sports this year. I haven't even talked about the Yankees. They're having one hell of a season, man. Just uh, swinging the ball, picking it off from last year. Aaron Judge is still swinging a hot bat. But we've gotten some new blood like Glaber Torres and Miguel Andujar. Been helping out, doing some extra lifting. You know, Aaron Judge still swinging a hot bat. Gary Sanchez, release El Kraken. Still doing his thing. Sorry, Frank Sicari. Mets are going down the toilet, baby. Alright, where was I? Okay, I didn't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but you Albany's lacrosse team in the Final Four for men's lacrosse in the NCAA. First time ever they defeated Richmond two weeks ago. And of course this past weekend while UAlbany was getting ready for commencement ceremonies, UAlbany survived a shootout against the University of Denver 15-13 to and they will face Yale in the national semifinals at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts this coming Saturday. You know that great hub of lacrosse, New England. I remember back in the past that when this event took place in such lacrosse strongholds as Philadelphia and even Baltimore, heck, 
lacrosse is a state sport in Maryland. But I digress. Of course, before lacrosse got to the prominence it is now, even you all me this season was ranked number one in the nation for a good long while. You Albany was known for basketball. Will Brown's been the coach since partway through the 2001 season. He's seen a lot of success out of Dane's teams. 2006 was their first ever appearance in the tournament. They came within a smidgen of doing what UMBC did to the University of Virginia this past year, and that has become the first ever 16 seed to upset a one seed in the NCAA tournament. But UConn being UConn in 2006, they just uh, came back and they uh, never let up. And, well, history was averted for another 12 years. Sorry for the chair creaking. Of course, they would make return appearances in 2007. In 2014, they got their first win in the first four against Mount St. Mary's, which doesn't really count, to be honest with you. It gets you in the tournament, sure, but it really doesn't count for anything, at least in my most humble opinion. UAlbany women's basketball team, on the other hand, they scored an upset in the 2016 women's basketball tournament when they defeated Florida at the Carrier Dome in Syracuse. And, of course, there's the UAlbany football program. A friend of mine from high school named Brian Becker, he was a redshirt uh, freshman. He originally played at this Division III school in New Jersey, Rowan University. And then he transferred over to UAlbany. I guess he must have been homesick. I played with Brian on this basketball team at the YMCA when I was in ninth grade. The one that went undefeated and won the league championship. Helps to know you have famous people in your friend circle. At least you knew them back in the day anyway. Now, I have to agree with Dave Meltzer, the controversial and much maligned man behind the Wrestling Observer, that this match really wasn't much of which to speak. I certainly don't have to be him to agree with them. I don't know what I just said. Anyway, it was kind of ugh. It was a slow plotting match we had there. And also, one word about Jameson. You can't unring that bell, let me tell you. Well, we got one last tag match to get through before we get to the good part of this show. And that is yet another tag match. But this time, the Tag Team Championships are on the line as the Natural Disasters take on the Legion of Doom. Now, this is before they became LOD 2000 in the Attitude Era. And, of course, we're talking about Joe Laurinaitis and the late, great Michael Hegstrand, Animal and Hawk, respectively. It was kind of a sad end for Michael Hegstrand, a.k.a. Hawk. I remember uh, in November of 98 watching Raw when somehow he got on top of the Titantron and all of a sudden he had fallen off of the top of it and it was just a, a sad scene. Thankfully he survived that one, but he had had a whole raft of issues with drugs and substance abuse that led to a premature death in 2003. Now, I got to say, this is around the time I was in 10th grade. I was a sophomore in high school. And I got to say, there were two subjects in which watching the WWF on the reg messed around with my grades. It all but ruined them. And that was biology and mathematics. I eventually recovered, though. My parents really had me on the leash. And I managed to kick out of that. Of course, Joe Laurinaitis is the brother of John Laurinaitis who is now a producer with WWE after being in the executive suites at Titan Towers in Stanford, Connecticut. And of course, he was known as Johnny Ace. Hey, boss. Hey, boss. Yeah, another shout-out to Bruce and Conrad on that whole deal. Of course, this makes John the uncle, and thus Joe the father of James Laurinaitis, who was in the NFL, I remember. He played linebacker at Ohio State. 
and then later went on to play in the NFL for a hot minute. And of course, John had some relation to current WWE talent. On September 3rd, 2015, according to his Wikipedia article, Lauren Ice became engaged to Kathy Colace, who is the mother of the Bella Twins, Brie and Nikki, and the mother-in-law of Daniel Bryan, and until recently, the mother-in-law of John Cena. In March of 2016, they were married in a private ceremony. Kind of weird how wrestling runs in the family in some cases. Well, that brings it into the undercard, and now, ladies and gentlemen, the Royal Rumble match itself, but first, a little musical interlude from 92. Just to put a pin on that last tag team match, I forgot to tell you the Natural Disasters took home the tag team championships at the end right there. And by the Natural Disasters were actually Earthquake, the late great John Tenna, and Typhoon, who was Fred Ottman, who you may recall as Tugboat. My brother-in-law sure does. He grew up with that stuff way back when in Syracuse. Alright, with that little side note out of the way, we can get back to the main business and... This is the Royal Rumble match, and this was for the vacant and later undisputed WWF World Heavyweight Championship. You were going to be the top dog going into WrestleMania. So at this point, you're probably wondering, well, how did you watch the 1992 Royal Rumble? It wasn't on YouTube or anything like that. Well, it was on Daily Motion, if you must know, but as I've stated previously, I've gotten a free month-long trial to the WWE Network, and that's where I watched it. The match starts out with the British Bulldog and the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase in the ring. And there's some grappling there. And there was a moment where Ted DiBiase, where Ted DiBiase, Ted DiBiase threw the Bulldog out of the ring. Or so he thought. But of course we all know a thing or two about celebrating too early and why you shouldn't do that. Because the British Bulldog wound up doing the honors of eliminating the Million Dollar Man. Not making him feel like a million bucks. And then after a little respite in the ring... Out comes the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, Robe and all, and Bobby the Brain Heenan cannot believe his bad luck. Now, as Ric Flair makes his way to the ring, it is often noted that this match is one of the greatest bits of commentary the late, great Bobby the Brain Heenan ever concocted. And, of course, there was great chemistry between him and Gorilla Monsoon. I'm sure even now those two are in the hereafter just joshing each other and Gorilla's going, Will you stop? Here's an example of such a commentary from uh, the late, great Robert Louis Heenan. Yes. What'd you say? No one ever in the history of the Royal Rumble has drawn numbers one 
now from here on out, these are going to be notes on random participants in the Royal Rumble match as I saw them. And these will be in chronological order of appearance. Coming in the number six position is Shawn Michaels. Now at the time, he had formed a tag team with Murray Jannetty called the Rockers. And they had some moderate success in the WWF. But it all came apart after three years on December 2nd of 1991 when during an episode of Primetime Wrestling, this particular breakup happened. Again, more great commentary by Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon. Shawn Michaels, well, you know what happened to him. The rest, of they say, is history. Mario Giannetti, on the other hand, well, let's just say his career wasn't quite the same after that little incident. Now, I have a bit of a confession to make, and it doesn't really involve what's going on in the ring. It's about something that's happening in the first several rows of this match. There was a guy in the Buffalo Bills sweatshirt in the hard camera position. He was about the front several rows. Now, I gotta make a confession here that the Buffalo Bills were the NFL team of my childhood. They went to four straight Super Bowls in the 90s. Unfortunately, they lost all of them, the first of which in heartbreaking fashion when Scott Norwood's field goal kick went wide right towards the end of the game. I remember watching Super Bowl 26. That was the first one I ever saw, or at least I can remember seeing. Go back to the episode where I talked about this past year's Super Bowl. I'll refer you there. And of course, 1994, I thought they were finally going to break the duck. They were at the league... They were in the lead against the Dallas Cowboys in Super Bowl 28, but unfortunately the Cowboys being the Cowboys in the early to mid-1990s, they stormed back and never gave up the lead, not once. And the Bills did come back and make the playoffs again this past season, but it really it wasn't the same. Let's be honest about this. Jacksonville took care of them. They had the improbable run in the AFC Championship. Could you imagine if Blake Borles squared off against Nick Foles in last year's Super Bowl? 
wouldn't have had the same ring as, say, Nick Foles and Tom Brady. Just put it out there. Bobby the Brain Heenan gets his set sight on El Matador, a.k.a. Tito Santana, as he follows Shawn Michaels into the ring. Unfortunately, uh, those two eliminated each other, but not before Bobby the Brain Heenan got in some commentary that would be deemed uh, racist in 2018, but anything went in 1992. Before I go on, I would like to apologize with some of the audio issues with the clips here. I record this off of my netbook here in the pod loft. Just put the microphone on my iPhone right in front of the speaker, and that was it. Actually, I just laid it against the screen and put the microphone on the bottom of the speaker. I tried to crank the volume all, as loud as I possibly could, within reason as far as my hearing goes. Well, several minutes later, we get to see the Texas Tornado, a.k.a. Kerry Von Erich. It should be known that the Von Erichs have to be the most tragic name in professional wrestling history. They're kind of like the Kennedys in that there has not been a moment where the family has not been touched by tragedy. In fact, just barely a month after this event, Kerry Jean Atkinson as that was his government name, was killed in a motorcycle accident. Well, actually, he suffered a motorcycle accident years earlier that nearly ended his life. He badly injured his right leg and dislocated his hip. And unfortunately, doctors had to take his right foot off, eventually amputating it, according to his Wikipedia article. And the injury from the motorcycle accident that led him down the road to suicide. According to his Wikipedia article, I've been saying that a lot in this episode, after the amputation of his foot, Kerry became addicted to painkillers followed by several drug problems. Among the many of them were two arrests, the first of which resulted in probation. One day after being indicted for the second charge, which likely would have resulted in extensive jail time, as it was a violation of his probation, Kerry committed suicide with a single gunshot to the heart with a 44 caliber pistol on February 18, 1993 on his father's ranch in Denton County, Texas. Now there's a widely used myth about the Von Erich curse about how these members of this family met early ends. Again, referring to Wikipedia, there's the second generation that really took the brunt of it. There was a son named Jack Jr., who was the first son of Fritz von Erich, died when he was six years old when he was accidentally shocked unconscious by an exposed wire and drowned in a puddle in Niagara Falls, New York, in March of 1959. There's David von Erich, who was born in July of 1958. But he was wrestling in Tokyo, Japan at the time of his death in February of 1984. And according to the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo, he said he had died of acute enteritis. Though Ric Flair in his autobiography said that, quote, everyone in wrestling believes, end quote, that it was a drug overdose that really did him in. And that Bruiser Brody disposed of the narcotics by flushing them down a toilet before the cops arrived. And of course, Mick Foley also claims that David Von Erich OD'd. 
Mike Von Erich also really uh, suffered a sad end. Born in 1964, he took his own life a month after his 23rd birthday, also in Denton County, Texas, by ODing on a tranquilizer. Well, shortly after his wedding in 85, two years earlier, Mike suffered a shoulder injury on a wrestling tour of Israel, was forced to undergo surgery, and then it was discovered that he was suffering from toxic shock syndrome, which is pretty rare in men. Uh, full disclosure, my late mom, God rest her soul, was a nurse. 40 years as an RN, almost half of which as a mental health nurse. And of course, we go to Chris Von Erich, who was the youngest of the seven Von Erich children. While he succeeded in the territories, he never did have the success of any of his six brothers. And he was also heartbroken over the loss of the aforementioned Mike Von Erich. So out of depression and frustration, he took his own life by shooting himself in the head just days before his 22nd birthday in 1991. Now, as something of a public service, I'd like to draw your attention to the suicide hotline number here in the United States. If you've had suicide feelings yourself, or you know somebody who has, just refer them to this number, 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. 8255 and press 1 and then there'll be somebody there to talk to you. There's always somebody there 24-7 all year round. Entering the ring in the big number 12 spot is Nikolai Volkov. Now, it's kind of deceptive. You think he was a Russian, but actually his government name is Josip Peruzovich. And he actually hails from Croatia. But he did wrestle as a Russian, or at least under the guise of one anyway. Looking at his singlet as he came to the ring, you have like the cross flags of the United States and the Soviet Union. So by the time the Royal Rumble happened in 92, it was kind of outdated as the Soviet Union had already collapsed by the end of 1991. Mikhail Gorbachev was out and Boris Yeltsin was in and the Soviet Union was withdrawn to the history books. The Russian Federation had taken its place. Remember Yeltsin? I think it'd be better than Vladimir Putin. Just putting it out there. A little side note there. Well, I've already talked about Roddy Piper. And now it's time to uh, mention the pride of Glens Falls, New York. Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Ho! Came in in the big number 17 spot. And he didn't last too long. And uh, Virgil uh, eliminated him. Now, I have to address something called the Lonely Virgil meme that's been making the rounds on the internet. As legendary retired wrestlers are wont to do sometimes, maybe for want of money, or maybe because the WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, has signed them to a quote-unquote legends contract, They'll usually hit up wrestling conventions and they'll have a booth set up where you can have autographs signed, take pictures, do a little conversating. 
The knock on Virgil is he never gets any action out of these shows. Mainly because the rib on him is he charges $20 for autographs and all that. They just go to the other wrestler, they get it for free. Just thought I'd address that one. Alright, we covered Virgil already. Hulk Hogan comes in at number 26. Yeah, brother. We'll talk to him later. Sid Justice comes in about three spots in. I mentioned Sergeant Slaughter in episode 42 of the WWF house show in Glens Falls that my sister and the rest of the family, this is before I was born, and Sergeant Slaughter caught one look at my sister and heel that he was back in those days, swad the Cabbage Patch doll right out of my sister's hands. So I've already mentioned that. This has been a long episode, as you can tell. I'm almost uh, mentally checked out, but I'm set for a strong finish. This is already the longest episode in the history of the Keep It To Yourself podcast. So it's down to Ric Flair, Sid Justice, and the Hulkster himself, who's already been mentioned on, in this episode. And it's a wild finish, one of the most controversial endings in history, at least for two of the wrestlers involved. Hulk Hogan gets put out of the ring by Sid Justice. And there's left Ric Flair, who has been in the ring for the better part of one full hour, to do the honors and take home the title. Kind of interesting to hear Bobby the Brain and kind of channeling Daniel Bryan. And with that, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, as the WWF World Heavyweight Championship to a stellar resume, which includes what would be 16 World Championship Wrestling slash NWA, no, not that NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance World Heavyweight Championships. certainly was too legit to quit and with that we go backstage for the post-mortem and Mean Gene Oakland is interviewing not only the new WWF champion but Bobby the Brain Heenan is there and also a number of Ric Flair's cronies to celebrate the win. However it was something that happened in the middle of this interview that really became the stuff of legend as the normally unflappable Oakland had this to say when this caught his eye. Rick Flair, you have made world. Put that cigarette out. Of course, uh, this was the only time I could recall Mean Gene breaking character. Of course, he also had some great improvisation with wrestlers, such as WCW's 1995 Halloween Havoc, 
during a promo cut by the late great Macho Man Randy Savage. Your mustache is crooked! Your beard is a little sideways too! Well, I hope you enjoyed this look at the 1992 WWF Royal Rumble. We went long in this episode. As we approach the end of this episode, let us do some pod shoutouts. First up, greetings from Allentown, Peter Winston. The most recent episode had him look at an episode of the UWF. Not the one with Bill Watts, the one with that cokehead Herb Abrams called UWF Fury Hour that aired right about March of 1991. And thanks to Herb Abrams' coke addiction, fizzled out sometime thereafter. And also check out GFA Live that dropped this past weekend. He and Keith Langston did a live watch and reaction to the 1991 mob classic, Goodfellas. Heard of it? Steve Bennett took the week off both his podcasts, the Sportscasters and the 24-inch podcast. The Loyal Littles podcast had Cindy Osbolt, the wife of Steve Osbolt, oh, excuse me, the woman to whom he's related by marriage. And Bob Walsh came on to talk about Summer of Littles 3.1. I'm trying to organize an event here in the Rolling Hills, the 518, but it looks like nobody's biting at this point. I'm still not giving up hope yet. But the odds could well be against me. Who knows and quite frankly who gives a shit. And a stunning development in Break It Down show land. He's no longer, P meaning Pete A. Turner that is. Pronouns, pal. Pete A. Turner is no longer producing episodes. Not just for audio consumption and video consumption as well. He has his own YouTube channel. You will be surprised to know he's moved it all to YouTube. So... If you have a YouTube account, go give them the follow there. You'll be watching along with listening. Get the full audio-visual package. As for this podcast, you can listen on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. If said podcatcher has capabilities to rate and review a podcast, either or both, give me a five-star rating and a good write-up. It'll help more people discover this podcast. I've been at this for over four years. I can sure use the help. All right, on to one more thing to wrap up the show here. Got two things that are all television related. As you may or may not know, one of my favorite shows of all time and one of my favorite game shows of all time is Jeopardy. There have been a raft of guest hosts that have hosted the show since the passing of Alex Trebek towards the end of last year at the age of 80 from pancreatic cancer. And right about the beginning of this year, 2021, there have been a good deal of hosts who have taken that position. Nobody can really replace Alex Trebek. It's going to be about a few months or so till the permanent host is named. It will only be the second in the modern iteration of this show. And there have been a whole bunch of guys who've, and guys and girls really, who've been taken to the rostrum to host this show and give the answers and let the contestants answer by asking questions. Kind of the whole point of the show, really. And I have some grades here that I like to give for the host in order of appearance. Mike Richards was the first to do it. I'll give him a B. You know, I'll give him a gentleman's B mainly because he's a producer, so I can't really fault him for getting a lower grade. I won't rank him any higher either. Ken Jennings, he was good, but not that good. I'll give him a C. Katie Couric, I mean, what was that all about? She tried to make it about herself, so I give her a D. Dr. Roz. Flat foot flunky with the Floyd Floyd. I'm glad I got through that. He had no business being near the Sony Pictures lot the two weeks or show he was hosting, let me tell you. All right, in no particular order here, the rest, Aaron Rodgers, Green Bay Packers quarterback, he did all right. He was the highest grader of everybody, B-plus in my book. Ben Whitaker was all right, B-minus, 60 minutes correspondent. 
Anderson Cooper of CNN. He's all right, but he's not real, to quote Jay-Z. C-minus on him. And there's some guest hosts that I am currently looking forward to. i got to mention Buzzy Cohen. As I'm recording this, the Jeopardy Tournament of Champions is back on after a two-year hiatus. You know, it's an incomplete gray as he's right in the middle. He's doing all right, but it's incomplete gray as this is ongoing as a press time. Rest of the guest hosts for this season, Mayim Bialik of Blossom and the Big Bang Theory. I remember her mostly from the former. Dr. Sanjay Gupta of CNN, colleague of Anderson Cooper. George Stephanopoulos and Robin Roberts, both of ABC's Good Morning America. David Faber, I have no idea who he is. LeVar Burton, I'm looking forward to this, the host of Reading Rainbow. And, of course, the sportscaster that everybody loves to hate, Joe Buck, will wrap it up this season. And that's when the season will end, usually around the end of July, but it's going to be mid-August because they took a break after Alex passed away. All right, on to the other thing about television. That was Elon Musk hosting Saturday Night Live, and that was about a couple of weeks ago as a press time. I stopped watching Saturday Night Live mainly because I've aged out of it, but I've heard it's just not as good as it used to be. You know, jokes aren't funny, you know, political satire. They really got in Trump's business when he was in office. I really don't know what they're doing with Biden now at the helm here in America. But Elon Musk got a lot of press. This is the man who is the CEO of Tesla. And he came out as having Asperger's syndrome, or he so admitted it. Now, as you may or may not know, I'm on the spectrum as someone who has high-functioning autism. And upon hearing my little commentary... You're probably asking yourself, well, Jason, aren't you proud to have somebody like Elon Musk in your ranks? I'm going to say hell no. And many in the autism community will certainly agree with me. They'll be unanimous in that. This guy is merely a charlatan. He's trying to get in there with his riches and whatnot and his odd name kid. He's trying to get in there, you know, just to mess with us, I think. I don't know what the real deal is, but I really don't like the fact that he's trying to horn in on our action by admitting that he's on the spectrum. So Elon Musk and someone in the autism community, kindly go fuck yourself. And that, friends, will do it for episode number 123 of the Keep It To Yourself podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I never take the audience for granted. Never have, never will. Adieu from both me and Otis the Wonder Dog who's sitting right beside me here at Bullet House. I'll talk to you on the next one, whenever that may be. And as always, and above all else, wait for it. Wait for it. Keep smiling. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Sit, boo-boo, sit. Good dog. <laughs> No-hitter, Chloe Cooper. Oh, my good goodness gracious.